My fellow Americans, are you tired of the new normal? Are you tired of the lies? Election fraud. You know the thing that the mainstream media and big tech says doesn't exist? It is time to end it. We must keep going. If you can't fly, run. If you can't run, walk. If you can't walk, crawl. But by all means, keep moving. Many of you are sitting here because you're wanting to know what the plan is. This has to be peaceful. Perhaps we have the right to peacefully assemble. The solution has been in front of us all along. Ask God if you should step into the gap and become a part of the plan. The plan is simple. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. We are the plan. If you're waiting for others to do the work for you, you're going to be waiting a long time. We are Conservative Daily. Welcome back to another episode of Conservative Daily. Um, we are here. This is going to be a really special broadcast. This is we are here with Donald Quarter, who is an American who lives in Russia, who actually has Russian citizenship, who did a documentary, and you know we talked about this when I did an interview um, back in August with Don, talking about the realities of what's happening in Ukraine and some of the the unbelievable stories that are coming out, the propaganda that's being built in the West against the uh, offensive that, that Russia launched into Ukraine. And so he did a documentary called Eight Years Before, and it's a Donbass documentary. It just actually premiered on October 22nd. I was hoping to actually get over there and watch it, but uh, this is probably one of the most impactful, truthful, created by an American living in Russia to add to more complexities. We're going to talk a little bit about kind of the, the re religious differences, the differences in, not religious, but political differences, and how it's, the water's been muddied by the adaptation of people's rhetoric in order to stand against people that many would probably agree with if he didn't have the rhetoric. So without any more, let's go ahead and bring Don. Don, welcome to the show. Hi there, Joe. Thanks again for um, having me back on the show. It's always a pleasure talking with you. You know, it, it, when, you first, when I first read about your political ideology, I was a little taken back. I even talked about it on the show. And, right. But now I read, and, and I want to say this, I read your stuff, I follow you, and, um, and I'm confused. I find myself confused. I'm like, well, I believe that. <laughs> and yeah. We were talking, because it's more complex than just right or left, you know, progressive, liberal, conservative. And I think you, you were voicing, before we actually got on, you were voicing some of the same, you know, sentiment. So, first of all, give everyone an, uh, just a background on who you are, just so that those that did, maybe didn't see the original interview um, can get some perspective on, on, on your history. Sure, yeah. Well, just to pick up basically where we left off from the conversation before we started recording and to give everyone who's watching a little bit of uh, an insight into what we're discussing. Basically, I was talking about the fact that um, traditional ideas of left and right on the political spectrum are, are just not relevant anymore, I don't think, in the 21st century. Um, you know, back in the 20th century, there was the Soviet Union and communists on the far left and 
um, you know, capitalism was uh, to the right of that. There was fascists uh, in, in the middle of the 20th century, farther right than that. But now we have a situation where there are, for example, Antifa, right? Antifa are people who declare themselves to be communists, anarchists, but at the same time, uh, their organization gets funding from, you know, capitalists like, uh, you know, George Soros, for example, is very friendly to them. Um, they support the United States government in its support for actual fascists in Ukraine right now, and they don't like China. They don't like communist China. So, so you know, this is just one example of many in our current world where, you know, someone calls themselves a conservative, someone calls themselves a communist, someone calls themselves an anarchist. It doesn't always mean what it used to. And I think the best thing we can do in these days is to judge people more by uh, what what they're working on, what they're actually doing. I think uh, if we judge people by their actions rather than uh, you know the political labels that used to be more relevant, I think we get a better understanding of where everyone stands. Uh, where everyone stands. I mean, for example, I um, I'm a communist. I believe in um, in the, what Marx called the materialist conception of history. That you know history has objective forces that fight with each other throughout history, and they lead to um, you know, um, a very, a very specific way that history can play out, you know, slave society, ancient Rome, feudalism, middle ages, uh, you know, feudal serfs and lords, capitalism comes next and then socialism and a classless society of communism. But that doesn't mean that, uh, I don't have anything in common, for example, with conservatives, for example. I mean, we're another thing that uh, Joe and I, you and I were talking about before the show is that the Russian Communist Party, the second most popular party in Russia, actually it looks quite favorably upon the Republican Party and likes Trump because it's been the Democratic Party that's been constantly harassing Russia. They've been the party of bringing uh, the forces of imperialism to Russia, putting pressure on the Russian people, putting pressure on the Russian economy. The 2014 Euromaidan coup d'etat in Ukraine that brought actual fascists to power was supported by the United States government under the Obama administration. Under Trump, there was a bit of a detente. You know, this uh, the, the the situation there was a lot um, cooler. But then Biden comes to power, and here we have an, an intensification of the entire situation. Like, we can't just look at it as Russia attacking Ukraine, because that's not really how it happened, uh, which is what I want, what I try to show in my documentary. The past eight years before uh, Russia's military operation and after the Euromaidan coup, Ukraine launched an anti-terrorist operation, they called, where they incessantly bombed peaceful people in Donbass, killed thousands of people, and these people just wanted to be separate. They declared their independence through a democratic referendum. And Ukraine continued bombing these innocent people, not only soldiers, but bombing cities, break, breaking the laws of war. Civilians. Uh, civilians. Yeah, civilians. And, and these civilians. were neo-Nazis. These... This is the Azov Battalion. These are people that are, that are really bad, that call themselves white supremacists, that call themselves neo-Nazis. Right. And, and they, they put it right out in front of I me. Mean, they, they wear the badges of being those types of people but they're forgiven by uh, Jewish Ukrainians because somewhere right. along the line they're they're the good neo Nazis because they're not killing the Jews. I'm confused. 
Well, as Vladimir Zelensky once said uh, in an interview to Fox News, when he, when he was asked about the neo-Nazi Azov Battalion, he said, they are what they are. <laughs> He's, these these neo-Nazis, these fascists in the Ukrainian military, they are like the volunteer brigades. They're the most ideologically dedicated anti-Russian, anti-Jewish, uh, anti-communist forces in Ukraine. They're the ones that are ready to fight the most. And, they, and because of that, they even use them as um, uh, the, uh, what are they called, barrier battalions for the regular forces. They, they basically put these neo-Nazi battalions behind the regular Ukrainian forces that are made up of conscripts that don't necessarily want to fight. And they make sure that, they're, that they don't retreat. You know? Or they shoot them. And they, they, yeah, or they shoot them or, yeah. or arrest them. Not. Uh, and these are neo-Nazis. And the, and. Zelensky might be Jewish, but he's got no problem using these people because they're his fiercest fighters. You know, I, I call those Jewish, Jewish. Yeah. In other words, they're they're born Jewish, but they have no sort of uh, connective tissue to their faith, right? Which right. is uh, is the main reason why they've been attacked across the uh, across the globe, going back to World War II or World War One, even. Um, right. So, so, so I want to get into this documentary. And, and by the way, you're, you're an American. You're, you were born in America. You went yeah. to school in America, right? Yeah, born in New Jersey. Yeah. yeah. And, and you studied Russian literature. Yeah, and language. And, and language. history as well. And uh, then you moved to Russia. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I just moved here after university. Um, I, I wanted to improve my level of Russian. I didn't really know what I wanted to do in life. Um, but I wanted to move to Russia to get a sort of adventure, improve my level of Russian. And then I found work at Russia Today and decided that I wanted to be a journalist. And it was always sort of in my sphere of interest. Even before then, uh, I went to Donbass, actually. The first time I was there was in, it was in 2016. I was invited to, uh, by the Lugansk Trade Union Federation to a conference called the International anti-fascist conference and they would invite foreigners who wanted to see what was actually going on there with their own eyes to uh, basically travel across the people's republics Lugansk and Donetsk speak with people I even met the president of uh, or well they called him the head of the Lugansk people's republic at the time um, his name was Plotnitsky um, just as a student and I and that that's kind of what really opened my eyes and made me very passionate about this because I saw with my own eyes what's actually going on there, and it just totally contradicted what we were seeing in the mainstream media. And now I see, and that was around like uh, after Euromaidan, right? Now I saw, a, a it was like deja vu, working here, understanding what was going on in Donbass. When the special military operation was launched, I was in Rostov, a, a Russian border region border to region. Uh, Donbass. Talking to the evacuees, the refugees that were coming from there, I saw with my own eyes how messed up all of this was, and the mainstream media was just telling a completely different story, giving no voice to these uh, people who had to leave their homes because right before Russia launched its military operation, Ukraine had increased its artillery bombardments of um, of towns of, of civilian installations by like a hundred times, and they were preparing for their own counteroffensive once again, or, uh, or a regular offensive rather. They, they were preparing for another offensive against Donbass. And at that point, after 
basically half a year of trying to negotiate with the West, saying we don't, we need to guarantee that Ukraine is not going to become a NATO state because this is threatening to Russia. It's an anti-Russian military alliance. Uh, they didn't get that guarantee. Diplomacy didn't work. The Ukrainians were back on the offensive. Russia had no choice, especially because the Minsk agreements weren't working, which were supposed to uh, broker some sort of ceasefire between Donbass and uh, the Ukrainian military. But these neo-Nazis, the Ukrainian military, they didn't abide by those peace accords. They're completely responsible for why they failed. You know, I got attacked right away when they said, when everybody started putting the flags up as the, you know, we support Ukraine. And I would ask the fundamental question, and I've been, and I've been on RT several times, giving commentary, talking about the government apparatus inside the United States and the propaganda that's, that follows. But I was attacked for saying, yeah. I can't stand with Ukraine. And I'm with, I, I will stand with Russia every day and twice on Sunday. Now, it doesn't mean that I want to stand with Russia and everything that they do. It just means in what's happened in Ukraine, I recognize that this goes back years. And we're just now hearing about it in the United States, but eight years. Eight years this war had been going on. Yeah. Right? And yeah. I, people, people just don't know about it. Every time I, uh, you know, Sergei Lavrov, Russia's foreign minister, gives a press conference, for example, to Western journalists, and they ask him this, like, uh, beating a dead horse question of why did Russia attack its peace, its peace-loving neighbor without provocation? It's just, it just it hurts me because just people do not see that in the in the Western media. They don't know anything that happened over those eight years. So, so I want to start at the beginning, and this was hard. Your your documentary, and we're gonna yeah. uh, put up the we're gonna show people where they can go and watch the documentary. But I I want the, the first couple minutes was difficult to watch. Because this yeah. is the previous president of Ukraine. Yeah. Right? That's talking about how he's going to com commit human rights abuses against his own people in Donbass. Right. And, yeah. and it's their own words. Yeah. And, he's, and, and we're supposed to, and, and, and here in the US, we don't get a chance to hear truth. So we don't know. Yeah. We're just, we're standing up for the bad guy and we don't even know it's a bad guy. So let's, right. play, let's play at least the first few minutes, and then I'm going to just um, read the subheadings uh, because it's not in yeah. English. And then if anybody wants to, to double-check it, absolutely. I did double-check. I'd sent it to a friend of mine uh, who is Russian, and he's like, yep, actually he's Ukrainian that used to live in Russia. So he uh, translated it, and I was like, is this what it says? Because, Don, I have to check and double-check too on my side to make I, sure that – I right? completely understand. I, as a journalist, would do the same thing. Yeah, so I wanted to make yeah. sure it was right, and it breaks my heart because using kids for target practice and blowing up innocent people and doing it, by the way, unprovoked by their own people. Yeah. That's the yeah. definition of genocide. So let's play the first couple minutes if we can. Just play two minutes of the front, and I'll read it, and uh, I'll, I'll let you know when to stop. Go. We will have our jobs, they will not. We will have our pensions, they will not. We will have social benefits for children, for people, for retirees, they will not. Our children will go to schools and kindergartens, theirs will sit in basements. Because they are not able to do a thing. This is exactly how we will win this war. Those on the audio version, these are bombs going off in Donbass everywhere. These are buildings being bombed.
Russians rockets raining down on Donbass and children hiding. Eight long years. Twenty-nine fruitless ceasefires. Thousands of innocent people killed. Countless broken promises and war crimes. How did it come to this? How did it happen that the same people who one day sang the same national anthem, went to the same schools, served to protect the same borders, found themselves embroiled in a ferocious civil war the next? the leaders of a violent coup d'etat called Euromaidan came to power in Ukraine. From abroad, the new government had the support of NATO, the European Union, and the most aggressive American militarists. Free world is with you. America is with you. It's John McCain. It does, if it does start to gain altitude, the Russians will be working behind the scenes to try to torpedo it. the EU. No, exactly. From within the country, the coup was propped up by extremist militias, armed neo-Nazi groups and political parties that glorify the country's past of Nazi collaboration. I could watch the whole thing. It's a little over two hours, but it gives you yeah. just a little taste of of what they faced in Dumbas and the conflict that happens again with the same people that go to the same schools that lived in the same neighborhoods, and this this war that created a, a lack of human dignity. It's hard to watch. Yeah. Yeah, and it didn't. It wasn't always like that. Actually, I mean, after the the fall of the Soviet Union, uh, I mean, obviously the situation was made worse. But the whole country was basically split like half and half. Half of it was basically pro-West, and the other half was pro-Russian. And every presidential cycle, they basically get a president who was pro-West and a president who was pro-Russian, and everyone was able to basically tolerate each other through that system. But this. Euromaidan coup d'etat in 2014 is what broke that peace and basically took the lid off of the chaos that was brewing for a long time. You know, there, uh, Tori uh, Mattis, she's from Ohio, uh, talks about 
how she was involved in the fixing of elections in Ukraine, um, dating all yeah. the way back to 2017. Um, I, I want to ask you the question that doesn't have anything to do with the, the, the specifically with this, but I mean, do you believe that? Do you believe that the elections in Ukraine were fixed? Yeah, I do. Uh, I mean, actually, that uh, that scene of the documentary that we, we just showed where um, Victoria Newland said, F the EU, that was one snippet from a larger conversation that got leaked that she was having with Jeffrey Piat, who was the uh, former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, where they were literally discussing who the United States was going to back when Euromaidan took power. What, what uh, leader of the Euromaidan coup was the United States going to put into power? So that that's why I included that in the in the video. So I totally think that they, it was it was installed like that. Well, we face <clears throat> massive election fraud in the United States, so much so that they're trying to convince everyone that there's no fraud. Yet we have mountains of fraud that show that the machines and the mail-in ballots uh, were basically yeah. manipulated in order to put this illegal and illegitimate regime in in power. I, I would say that most of the world knows that it's not a legitimate election system in the United States, other than these people yeah. in the media here. Um, would you agree? Yeah, de definitely in Russia. I mean, I've been I've been to a lot of places around the world, <laughs> and uh, they all they all seem quite perplexed at the system we have. Um, specifically, the electoral college, you know, because everyone asks me if. Uh, if I vote in the election, since I'm in Russia, technically I can through the embassy, and I don't. I mean, the reason for that is because I come from an electoral district from New Jersey that's been Democrat for like how many, however many decades. That's just not going to change. Whatever I vote for, it's not going to change anything, you know. So I, I do think the electoral system needs to be re like seriously uh, reformed in the United States. It makes no sense. <clears throat> Well, I want to go through some of the other things that you have. We have a cut that discusses the children in Donbass region versus Ukraine briefly, and then uh, Putin's declaration for a special military operation or the human rights abuses occurring there. Uh, let's go ahead and play that cut, yeah. and then I'll just get your thought on this. For eight years, Ukraine's children walked to and from school without fear, while those in Donbass sprinted under artillery fire. For eight years, Ukrainians slept in peace and quiet, while those in Donbass wondered every night if a bomb would fall on their home. For eight years, the thought of becoming an amputee in the blink of an eye did not even cross the minds of most Ukrainians, as it relentlessly terrorized the Donbass people. It was finally time to put an end to such an injustice. Right now, a day go by without shelling of populated areas in Donbass, the killing of innocent civilians, the blockades, the abuses of people, including children, women, and the elderly, continues. How much longer can this be tolerated? In connection with this, I believe it is necessary to take a long overdue decision. Immediately recognize the independence and sovereignty of the Don Donetsk People's Republic and the Lagotsk People's Republic and in order to carry out the Treaty of Friendship and Cooperation with the Donetsk People's Republic and the Langus, I can't, it was ratified on February 22nd. The decision has been made to launch a special military operation. Sorry, I have to look through a camera, and so I have to try. <laughs> yeah, no problem. 
If you um, want, I can narrate it too, and it goes because I, yeah. I, I I know the text by heart now. Okay, <laughs> perfect. I'll, I'll have you I'll have you do that. But but tell me what just happened. I mean, this is this is him just making a decision to say, look, I can't I can't watch people innocent people die any longer. Right. So this is uh, basically. Um, this is not actually just one speech. This is two speeches. Um, the the first one where he talked about, you know, how long can this be tolerated? This was when Russia recognized the independence of the Lugansk People's Republic and Donetsk People's Republic. They declared independence in um, 2015 after the uh, Euromaidan coup d'etat, after the Ukraine launched its anti-terror operation against its own people who said that they don't want to be part of this Euromaidan coup d'etat. They see it as illegitimate. They declared independence. And because of that, Ukraine was like, we are going to force you into submission with using the military, which is what they tried to do over those eight years, bombing civilians, killing people, torturing people. There's even uh, one documented case uh, committed by a neo-Nazi battalion that Amnesty International said they sexually assaulted a, a mentally disabled man. You know, this is just one example of uh, the kind of crimes that they've been they've been carrying out. And so, Vladimir Putin's is Vladimir Putin's giving this speech after months of trying to negotiate with the West uh, for you trying to get Ukraine to, to follow the Minsk protocols, which were agreed to multilaterally in 20, in twenty fifteen. And there have been a number of ceasefires that have been uh, that have come subsequently after that. Russia was involved, Western powers were involved, Ukraine and the leaders of Lugansk and, and Donetsk were involved in this. They all agreed to these peace treaties, and Ukraine wasn't abiding by, uh, abiding by them. They were called the Minsk Protocols. And then the United States started ramping up this stuff about potentially making Ukraine part of NATO, which would be a, a, an, an unacceptable provocation on Russia's border. And so there were diplomatic talks between Sergei Lavrov, Russia's foreign minister, and Western leaders for months before then. And then, as I said, Ukraine ramped up its military operations again. Uh, they had to evacuate thousands of people from Donetsk and Lugansk because uh, the authorities were like, we have to prepare for a Ukrainian offensive. Like they're gonna, this is gonna be their attempt to take over our territory. And I spoke to those people too. They were talking, you know, when I was in Rostov, they said that the Ukrainians were constantly bombing them. It, it just became a hell to be in Donbas. And after, a, you know, after several days of these evacuations and the intensification of these Ukrainian bar- bombardments. Putin's administration came to this conclusion: enough is enough. This can't be done. This can't be. This can't be done through negotiations. The, the Ukrainians are just not going to follow any negotiations that are agreed to. They, they've already proven that for eight years. Personally, I think this should have been dealt with way earlier, uh, as soon as these neo Nazis came to power. And this is actually a, a big criticism that a lot of Russians have of Vladimir Putin that he didn't deal with this earlier. Um, but at because that how time, because he, because had he been decisive at that moment, it would have set the precedent that we're not even going to tolerate anything. Otherwise, it showed a maybe a resistance to getting involved, or a resi- I don't I don't even know what you call it, but it you know it, it it showed a measured approach to a lack of humanity that I don't think anyone would expect. Right, right, and uh, and yeah, so 
I understand the like Putin's thought process here, you know, not wanting, he, you know, because Russia wanted also to like respect the territorial integrity of Ukraine. This is something that a lot of Westerners don't understand. They just think that Putin and the Russian government are like aggressive jerks who want to just take over everything. That's not true. For eight years, they tried to respect the territorial integrity of Ukraine. And, you know, it, it didn't work. And uh, a lot of people say that he should have, uh, you know, dealt with this earlier. Um, and he, he's it, Vladimir Putin's taken quite a conservative approach. And we could see that in the special military operation as well. Uh, you know, not that many troops were sent to Ukraine, all things considered. And now, you know, pretty much everyone understands that that, that was probably a mistake. And now partial mobilization has been declared to, uh, to take care of the situation. But back then, anyway, um, Putin finally made the decision, you know, enough is enough. This cannot go on. We need to recognize the independence of these uh, people's republics that had democratic referendums. They said they wanted to be independent. And for that, they were being tortured. They were being tortured. 95%, 95% in some areas. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then several days after, he declared the special military operation because Russia, Russia uh, recognized their independence, and then they themselves, the administrations of Lugansk and Donetsk, said, we want Russia to come help us militarily. So this was not really, this was not just Russia going in there. And this is something that I saw with my own eyes when I was filming this documentary. We're filming, we filmed this documentary in 2021, long before the special military operation was taking place. Originally, the idea was to make a documentary about the fact that this conflict is like frozen in time and nobody knows about it in the West, but it's happening and people are dying and we want to bring attention to that. And then towards the middle of us editing the documentary and, and moving it forward and everything, all these events began to transpire and we had to change the entire um, plot of our documentary basically because a huge part of the plot line changed uh, with, the, with the special military operation. But still, it was good because now we have this opportunity to show people what they don't know about what came before the special military operation. And when um, when we were there, we you know spoke with ordinary people, with officials, and for years already before the Russian military operation began, they were saying we we want to be a part of Russia. They originally declared independence because they just didn't want to be part of this fascist state. They originally did not have aspirations to become part of Russia, but the fact that nobody recognized them, nobody wanted to help them, and they were facing constant threats and bombardments by the Ukrainian military, they came to the conclusion that the only way they're actually going to stay away from Ukraine is if they become part of Russia. And after all, the, the majority of the population in these areas are actually ethnically Russian, not Ukrainian. This is another, another important thing to keep in mind. And so... The administrations, the people there, they were talking about becoming part of Russia and getting Russian military assistance long before Russia even launched this military operation. And Russia was reluctant to do it because they were trying to basically have good relations with the West. Because the West was pointing the finger at Russia since 2014, saying Russia invaded uh, Ukraine under, like, seek uh, covertly. They sent in their regular troops to help the people's militias. They gave them tanks, weapons. I went there myself. That that's just not farthest. That that could not be farther from the truth. 
one thing that um, the the militias explained to me when I was there, and it's in the documentary, is that they had a serious problem because the militias did not get Russian equipment. They were using Ukrainian equipment. And so the Ukrainian military was, and, and this Ukrainian equipment was from armories that were already in Donetsk and Lugansk before the coup d'etat happened. Mm -hmm. So these two armies were fighting with the same equipment, and it was hard to understand who was who. So what the Ukrainians started doing was painting white stripes on their uh, armored vehicles so they could tell the difference. And that's, uh, you know, part, that's, that's a huge indication that Russia or uh, that uh, the Donbass People's Republics did not receive Russian weapons and equipment. So, so I have some more cuts that I think I want to play because we got a little bit further ahead of it, but I have the Minsk protocol that needs to be, so this has to be read, so I'll let you read it. But, um, um, and then I have another one with a woman talking about this and the Western backing. So, uh, Apollo, if we can just play uh, that cut, please. Yeah, I'll read it for you. Ukraine did not intend to comply with the Minsk agreements or to keep peace. That is because Ukraine, with the support of the West, was set up specifically for confrontation, specifically to conduct military activities as well as the destruction of the population of Donbass, which did not support the coup d'etat that took place in February of 2014. In February, shelling of our territories increased 100-fold. Before the special operation, yes, before. In February, if we look at the statistics, the number of shellings increased to 400 times a day. <clears throat> Prohibited types of weapons and shells were used to attack both Lugansk and Donetsk. We are young states, so of course without such a brother, without such a helping hand from the Russian Federation, it would of course be very difficult for us to survive. However, there is one strength that we possess. Despite all the attacks against us, despite the severity of the situation, Despite being an unrecognized, in an unrecognized status, though later recognized by Russia, we still always adhere to the norms of international law. We never broke them. Therefore, the accusations against us and against Russia, they simply do not correspond to reality. What role did Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky play in violating the Minsk agreements? This is my question to them. <clears throat> Mr. Zelensky has never made any decisions on his own. I said at the beginning, and now I want to reiterate, that Mr. Zelensky, as well as Mr. Poroshenko, who was the former Ukrainian president, were puppets in the hands of the Western partners. It's no secret to anyone that since the conflict, since 2013, <clears throat> Intelligence officers from various states have been entering the building of the Ukrainian Intelligence Services, or SBU. Mostly, they were American and British. This was my first point. And the second point is that these battalions were trained by foreign instructors. 
Therefore, neither Mr. Poroshenko, neither more Mr. Zelensky could have been unaware about these actions or of these punitive battalions, about the actions of these armed people and about the abuse and murders that took place on our territory. How hard was it to actually hear that coming from someone in on the ground there? Well, it was, uh, it, was, it was definitely hard. This was actually just to give uh, everyone watching an understanding of who this person was. She was an elect, she is still an elected representative of the Lugansk People's Republic administration. It's called the, uh, the Lugansk People's Council. So she was, she's elected to that council. Um, and it, it was hard, definitely. I mean, but you know, her, her telling me secondhand, I've already become kind of numb to it, I guess. I've just heard so much of it. I think the real uh, things that got me were um, talk, were actually being near the, the uh, border, the line of confrontation, it was called, before the special military operation was launched. The line of confrontation and talking to these people that live in villages right next to that line of confrontation and them basically telling me from... As, as a primary source, you know, exactly what Olga in that clip was talking about. You know, they were crying, telling us these stories of how, um, you know, Ukraine, a Ukrainian tank, uh, one lady I remember, a Ukrainian tank just rolled up into her town and started blowing things up just aimlessly. It was, and there, was no, there were no military uh, installations there. They were just shooting people's homes. Uh, another lady told me about how Ukrainian snipers, and these are people living near the line of confrontation. So Ukrainian snipers can see into the uh, towns on the other side of the front line. And they would just take pot shots at civilians. They, they considered them separatists, which, you know, whether they were a soldier or a civilian, they considered them all separatists. And for Ukrainians, separatists are, or for the Ukrainian military, these separatists were just like lower than, than human. So it, it, it was heartbreaking being there, hearing those stories. Um, we, we have one that is a victim of the Ukrainian shelling, um, and our experience is not in English. Uh, this, this got me. And look, I've seen a lot of death. I've been all over the world. I've seen a lot of violence. Um, and I would tell you that I'm numb to a certain portion of it, but seeing people suffer is just not something I'm, I think I'll ever get used to. Um, yeah. But, but I want to play this, and, and, and frankly, I want everyone to watch this two-hour documentary. So I want them to see this because I think this is, uh, yeah, this is powerful. Let's go ahead and play it. You're going to have to. My name is Yulia Mikhailova. I'm from Donetsk. My experience in 2014 we were out of work. It was terrifying. We were sitting in basements without food. People were getting humanitarian aid, and it was mostly for old people, our parents, because there, were, there was no humanitarian aid for young people as there were age restrictions. There were no jobs and no people around. Donetsk and our republic became a ghost town. <clears throat> because there were no people, no cars, no animals. People abandoned everything and left, and left to save themselves. On January 22nd, 2015, I was caught in shelling. I was going to work at 9.30 a.m. It happened at the Vase bus stop. It's usually crowded with people who go to work and traffic. 
Shuttle buses, trolley buses, streetcars are all around there. I asked, what was your job? She said, I was a secretary. She says, I used to go by this stop every day and everything was fine. Until January 22nd when there was a mortar bombardment. Life changes in the split of a second. You don't understand what's going on. Suddenly I was deafened. I don't know if it was shell shock or what. I've never had that experience before. We were a thriving, beautiful city and we still are. And I turn back and I see there's a car on fire and the driver is sitting exactly like that, burning alive. He was probably already dead, but he was just sitting there on fire. I turned to the other side, there was a woman there and I realized they were all dead. I look at myself and I see my arm torn off and I'm like, all right, take it easy. People live with one arm, you just need to save yourself, you need to get out of here as soon as possible. And I get up and fall down. I look at my leg and it was twisted backwards. I start crawling my way through the shrapnel and the glass. The whole bus had turned into a sieve, and all in splinters and perforated from bullets. There was chaos and panic. Wounded people screaming and those who helped as well. After all, they had to see people torn apart and say to them, don't worry, everything is all right, you will live. I began to crawl out of the trolley bus and a man said to me, wait, get down. I ducked and just merged with the asphalt like that. Even in 2014 and 2015, there were notices at our bus stops telling us what to do during mortar shelling. You have to touch the asphalt, hug it, and lie down without raising your head. I did so, and four more mortars came. There were four explosions, and then everybody heard silence. It's time to help people. Someone helped me and pulled me from the trolley to the bus stop. I looked at myself and I asked, am I all right? A man answered, yes, everything is all right. I said, no, I'm not, my arm is torn off. And he started giving me first aid, tearing my coat and making harnesses. All of the wounded were lucky that it was winter. We were freezing, so the blood loss, you know, was little. What's it like having that conversation with someone? I had never been, um, I'd never been at that time that close to uh, someone who was so, who, who knew death so well, to be honest. It was a pretty surreal experience, especially because hearing this uh, girl who, and, and this, this girl, uh, you know, she, she, she's a very optimistic person. Despite everything she's been through, she's, she had she had a smile on her face the, the whole time we were there um she dedicates her life to helping children who were negatively affected by this uh, by this war um but it's just crazy to hear someone say that they were that she was lucky because she was freezing in winter and that it, it stopped her blood loss that's what she was lucky for in, in this uh, situation and there are so many stories like that from Donbass that are just absolutely incredible. And I mean, 
incredible in the literal sense of the word. Like you, you some of this stuff, it, it's so hard to believe because it's so brutal. Well, we can't get close to it here. I mean, the people in the streets don't have to worry about bombs falling on their homes here. Yeah. And, you know, I, so I assume she lost her leg too. Uh, she still has her leg, actually, but it, it's not it's not use, useful. Um, she she just still has it. It didn't need to be amputated, but she still has it to look more or less normal. But everyone on in the West here is being told that Ukrainians are the good guys. Right. We're being told that uh, it's so terrible that Ukrainians are having to be in bomb shelters, that they're that they're having to be, you know, refugees going to different countries because their country is at war. But this was happening in Donbass for eight years, and and nobody nobody did anything about it, except finally Russia to stop this like constant torture of these people, and these people who uh, are, are in Ukraine. And you know, like war is a terrible thing. I. I, I, I'm not pro-war, and I think the people who say that uh, they're against war, especially the people in Russia who are against the special military operation and their slogan is no war, I think this slogan just represents how little they know about this conflict. Because this war was not started by Russia, it was started by Ukraine. And all of these people who are now, all of these Ukrainians who are now you know, facing the consequences of war coming to their own territory, they, you know, the vast majority of them didn't even give a second thought to what was going on in, in Donbass at that time. They were, they were like I said in, in, the, uh, in the documentary, they were living their lives normally while children were sprinting to school to avoid artillery bombardments in Donbass. And now, so, you know, war was happening before Russia launched its special military operation. In fact, this special military operation is what's going to put an end to this war. These, it's really Russia that's trying to put an end to this war because if there was not some step like this taken, it would have just continued and continued and continued until the People's Republics would have been absorbed by the Ukrainian military. These people who were saying that Donbass should come back to Ukraine as they're bombing them, you know, who, what kind of crazy psychopaths would want to go back to a country that continues to torture them, kill their children, and uh, bomb them incessantly. Um, and this was something we saw in the Ukrainian propaganda leaflets also that were dropped in Don, on, on Donbass. In this, uh, one of the parts of the documentary, I, uh, I filmed part of a museum that I went to and it had some of these Ukrainian propaganda leaflets that were dropped on the capital of Lugansk People's Republic, also known as Lugansk. Uh, and these these slogans were ridiculous. They were like, uh, "If you don't want to die from cholera, you should come. You need to come back to Ukraine." Like it was not like even trying to get them to voluntarily come back. All of this propaganda was threatening Donbass into returning to Ukraine. Another one said, uh, "Unless you want to live without water and electricity, you should come back to Ukraine." This was the kind of strategy they employed. So imagine if. Russia didn't launch its special military operation. This was allowed to continue until these people were, subdu were subdued against their will into returning to Ukraine. They'd be living under a fascist regime that has no respect for the people of Donbass. 
that that is basically um, you know bent on on committing genocide against them. That that is that is a completely terrible crime. That even European organizations like the um, uh, like the Organization for Security and um, oh, I forgot what it is in English. In Russian, it's Oblast. Yeah. Uh, the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe yep. that was collecting statistics in Donetsk and Lugansk and in Ukraine during the uh, the, the pre-special um, military operation years, they were they were doing nothing. Uh, they were doing nothing to stop any of these war crimes or to bring attention to them. Uh, and and to be honest, there are a lot of accusations from the Lugansk and Donetsk side that they actually. Um, knew about when Ukraine when Ukrainian forces were going to launch artillery strikes on certain areas of Lugansk and Donetsk, and they didn't tell any of the residents there because they would always leave these trucks from the organization for collect uh, for security and cooperation in Europe. The trucks would always leave an area that was about to be bombed by Ukrainian artillery, and so a lot of people believe that they were actually being given information from the Ukrainian military. And they were not telling civilians to leave that area, so the Europeans were basically complicit in all of this, and the United States, of course, as well. The government. So what? What? I always ask the question why. When you work the problem, you have to you have to ask the question why. But what's the motive? But it, it seems as if the motive is just a lack of regard for human life, a lack of regard for just basic humanity. Not not even just. I mean. It, just basic, just found fundamental humanity. And to have the US and Europe be complicit in this behavior of bombing their own people, to what end, Don? What, what's, what's, the, what's the end goal? What, what do you anticipate the end goal is for Ukraine in doing this to the people in Donbass specifically? Well, there are several reasons, and depending on whose perspective you try to get, you might have a different answer. But if you wanna talk about specifically in Ukraine, uh, it's it's all based in history. Um, there's really very there's it's hard to say that there's such thing as like a centrist liberal in Ukraine. The country has been divided between east and west basically since before um, World War Two, and there there are two the the west the western part of Ukraine and the eastern part of Ukraine have very different worldviews. They have very different ideas. Uh, very different ideologies, and I mean, for for convenience' sake, basically we can bring it back to World War II, when basically West Ukraine collaborated with the Nazis. They they invited the Nazis in as liberators because they didn't like the Soviet Union, and the eastern part of Ukraine fought them. They became partisans. Partisans uh, were basically guerrillas. Guerrilla fighters who, when the Nazis came, they ran away from their villages, ran into the forest, took up arms, and fought an insurgency against the Nazis. And then when the Red Army came back, the, uh, they joined up with the Red Army and kicked the rest of the Nazis out of, um, out of Ukraine. Now, West, West Ukraine, these people who collaborated with the Nazis, who have, you know, basically their legacy is one of the part of Ukraine that has been just for centuries historically anti-Semitic, uh, super nationalist. They hate Russians. They hate Poles. They hate anyone who 
you know, is a challenge to the, the national, uh, basically fascistic idea of Ukraine. And East, East Ukraine was not like that. Um, and after World War II, the majority of these people actually, or maybe, I'm, I'm not sure about the majority, but a huge amount of these people that collaborated with the Nazis left the country because the communists, uh, the Soviet Union, you know, they were out to find out who collaborated with the Nazis and who was going to be punished for that. And so these people left Ukraine and most of them, the Ukrainian diaspora, we call them, most of them went to Canada and the United States who continued to help these Nazi collaborators fight an insurgency against the Soviet Union until the 1950s. Uh, I mean, the most common, uh, the most widely known Nazi collaborator from Ukraine was Stepan Bandera, and he was the head of the uh, organization of Ukrainian nationalists. When the Nazis came in, they welcomed the Nazis, and then Stepan Bandera declared an independent Ukraine, and the Nazis were like, no, 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 you're not going to uh, have your own country. This is our controlled territory. Stepan, they put Stepan Bandera in a concentration camp and said, you can continue to uh, lead your insurgency from our concentration camp. And then after World War II uh, finished, Stepan Bandera began uh, leading this insurgency for the CIA and MI6. And it wasn't until, 19, uh, until the 1950s, either 1953 or 1956, I can't remember exactly, that he was eventually killed by the KGB. And these people, uh, the majority of these people who collaborated with the Nazis ended up in the West. And also there were a lot of people who rem remained in Ukraine, but uh, in Soviet Ukraine. So, and, and, you know, you know, in the Soviet Union, uh, there wasn't exactly complete freedom of speech, but the reason for that was because there were so many instances like Soviet Ukraine, where there were people who collaborated with the Nazis and they had fascist ideas. They were bitter about the fact that they were defeated in the second world war. And the com the communist government there said, we are not going to allow these people to, uh, you know, organize fascist groups or try to create some sort of fascist opposition to the government. So in the Soviet Union, and if you ask people who lived in Soviet Ukraine, I've spoken to a lot of them, just taxi drivers that I get into conversations with, you know, who are Ukrainian in Moscow. And they tell me, you know, that this is a, a topic that a lot of people are discussing right now. I've spoken to tons of people who lived in Soviet Ukraine. They all tell me these fascists were there. But in the Soviet Union, they kept their mouths shut because they knew that they could get in trouble. And then after the Soviet Union collapsed, they came out of the woodworks. The, the people who left to the West, many of these Ukrainians who, have, who still pass down these anti-Semitic fascistic ideas to their uh, children and their grandchildren, they returned to Ukraine. And then you get the, these formations that eventually came to fruition with the Euromaidan coup d'etat in 2014. So you have two different historical legacies in Ukraine. And it, all, and it also is more or less connected to um, ethnicity as well, more or less, but not entirely. Because uh, the, eastern, the eastern half of Ukrainian is more Russian and uh, the western half of Ukraine is, uh, you know, there's, there's uh, Germanic Ukrainians as well as uh, Pol Polish Ukrainians as well, but they're farther away from uh, the, the Russian heritage. Um, so, but they consider, you know, they could, th these people, they consider the Soviet Union an extension of Russian occupation of their land. And 
this idea is so wrong because actually the the Soviet the Soviet partisans who fought against these people in World War II and that support Russia right now, I mean, they consider themselves uh, you know ethnic Russians, but at the same time. Uh, they grew up in Ukraine and lived their entire lives in Ukraine. They even speak Russian like Ukrainian. Um, and especially in World War II, where this is, this is where like the kind of historical narrative for these Ukrainian nationalists falls apart. The partisans who fought against the Nazi collaborators were all Ukrainian. There's not Russians coming in to fight against the Ukrainians until the Battle of Stalingrad when the Nazis had to start retreating. Before that, it was the Ukrainian insurgency uh, against Nazis was Ukrainian. Um, and, th and this is something that's talked about in the documentary as well. They call, uh, they don't recognize these Ukrainian Soviet partisans as Ukrainians. They call them Russian occupiers, even though these people were born in Ukraine, grew up in Ukraine, and some of them never even stepped foot in Russia. So this is, this is the strange ideology of these Ukrainian nationalists. Um, and we can basically use the term Ukrainian nationalist and Ukrainian neo-Nazi interchangeably because like i said there's really there's very the, the there's really no in the middle in ukraine centrists are a super small minority of the population there's either people who totally identify with the soviet union they love uh you know what the soviet union the the memory of it and they support russia 100 percent, or people who are like super pro-west because they're supporting you know their neo-nazi goals so which which seems uh antithetical to reality like the to what they should be supporting uh, you know i i want to play this if i can this is at the end of the movie and it it there's so many different parts in there where it goes through the suffering of the people in donbass but this part you have a young kid talking about young child talking about what's happening in ukraine so i want to play this really quick and then get your thoughts on it and look i'm i'm not trying to play on um the sympathies of anyone i think it's i think war is terrible but we can yeah. look at we can look at the U.S. involvement in Ukraine and the amount of corruption and, and it, it's it's like the it's the boiling pot the the hangout place for the George Soros's of the world the Bill Gates of the world the the, the Bidens and the Obamas and and really all the people who have been very very corrupt and stealing not just from the American people but wreaking havoc across the world so I want to play this little part it's about two minutes um, but I want um, it, it was a good way to end it end the the movie but I want to play this and. If I can't, let's go ahead and play it. Tell me, what, tell me what happened to your leg. It's broken. How did it happen? We stepped on a landmine. There's no road, no building that they haven't shelled. Everything is ruined. The maternity hospital suffered a direct hit. We tried to evacuate pregnant women. Their bellies were torn. Words can't even describe what was going on there. Dead people are just buried in courtyards. A lot of people died. My friends who I studied and trained with, they died, my guys. And nobody will bring them back. These are the consequences of recent shelling across from the theater. 
Let's see if there are injured people here or not. There's a large hole. Those ultra-fascists struck this market crowded with people. Two young women were killed. What horrible beasts do things like this? Right into the market where a large crowd of people is. She's lying down over there. We can't find Vika. Come, I'll wrap your feet. Come here. You know, it, uh, it, 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 it shocks the senses that the U.S. and the U.S. were told something completely different. And then you see what's actually happening in Donbass. And I've talked to people, again, torn by the idea of do I support Ukraine? Do I support uh, the, the Russian, I'll call it liberation? And the more information yeah. that I get, the more I was like, I can't ever stand with Ukraine. I can't stand with, stand with Zelensky. I could never do it. Yeah. Yeah, they're they're horrific people, to be honest. Zelensky and the people who support, uh, who who fund these neo-Nazi organizations, the neo-Nazis themselves. I mean, to be honest, the, the, I I feel, but I feel just as bad for ordinary Ukrainian people as I do for the Donbas people because you know they didn't ask for this either. Uh, they their their country fell into right right basically between. A, a clash of titanic proportions between U.S. imperialism and the anti-imperialist world, Russia. And, you know, well, Russia, Russia's part of it. Um, it's it's really it's really unfortunate that uh, all all these innocent people are dying. You know, in, in Ukraine as well, not just in Donbas. But but now what Donbas has faced for the last eight years has now come to roost in many parts of Ukraine as these special operation is now heading into its second phase and probably the most yeah. deadly phase. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think what, what I think is going to happen based on, because again, I've been following this day by day, what I really think is going to happen. And this is something I, I posted in my, my, on my telegram channel a while ago too. I'm, it's interesting to see everything play out. I think, I think I'm, I've got the right idea about this. Russia's, Russia's going to, I think to launch a, a, a huge, military offensive over the winter uh what by that time these three hundred thousand new troops that have been mobilized are going to have the training they need to fight an offensive war uh they're going to have all the equipment they need they're going to be there in Donbass. at the same time russia right now is launching precision missile strikes on ukraine's energy infrastructure something that happened just today actually ukraine the ukrainian government told Re uh, Ukrainian refugees from the war abroad not to come back to the country because they're going to, they're, you know, there's not, the en energy infrastructure is not going to be uh, enough to keep everyone warm. The reason for this, I think, is that uh, the reason that Russia is attacking the energy infrastructure is that that, the destruction on that infrastructure combined with the fact that Europe is already facing an energy crisis because of everything, because of all the sanctions 
because of the fact that they, uh, you know, are cutting ties with Russia and everything. It's going to create such an energy problem for Ukraine that it's going to that there's not going to be one industry or sphere of activity in Ukraine that's not going to be affected. I think the primary one that's going to be critical is the um, is the amount of Western supplied weapons the Ukrainian military has had because that's been the primary game changer for Ukraine. If they didn't have that, I mean, they would have lost already. And I think everyone is agree in agreement with that on the Russian side and the Ukrainian side. But if over the winter Russia launches a mass offensive and the Ukrainians are not able to, they don't have enough energy to uh, upkeep the the uh, Western military equipment that they that was provided to them, they don't have enough fuel for their vehicles and they're forced basically to uh, fight with, you know, not advanced technology in the middle of winter, I think that's going to be the, the critical moment. And I think that's when Russia's going to um is, is going to win the conflict i think it, it's likely it's going to happen over the winter and another thing i want to say is that uh you know it's if for anyone following the russian side of all this it's very clear that from the beginning of the russian military operation the goal was not to overthrow the ukrainian government right they wanted to come to a, a peace agreement with uh, with zelensky they wanted zelensky to negotiate give up his claim on Crimea and Donbass, and Russia and Ukraine could come up to some sort of agreement. Because think about it, Russia doesn't want to deal with an Afghanistan situation. Right. They, they, they don't want to overthrow the government in Ukraine, put some people that are friendly to Russia in there, deal with the inevitable insurgency that's going to come from that, put all the money into the re reconstruction of the country, deal with the political instability that's going to come after that. I mean, it's going to be Afghanistan right, right all over again. But personally, this is just my personal opinion, I think uh, after what we've seen with Zelensky's just lack of any sort of uh, want to negotiate or anything, uh, I think Russia is going to have no choice. I think, uh, I think it's, it's going to have to go to Kiev, uh, just my personal opinion. Um, it's it, negotiations I just don't see uh, are going to be viable. And okay. unfortunately, that's not going to be an easy uh, situation to deal with, but I see it as the only, the only outcome right now. All right. Last question on this. And this is going to be a hard question for you to answer. Mm -hmm. You think there's a conflict? And, and I'll tell you my thoughts after you give me yours, but do you think there's a conflict in the, in the making between Russia and the United States? Uh, you mean like an open conflict? I mean, we're, we're, we're fighting a proxy war right now through Ukraine against Russia. I mean, yeah. if, if that, if that goes kinetic with the use of us troops, um, don't you think that leaves, uh, Putin no choice, but to, to, uh, take another escalation against the United States? Definitely. But uh, in my personal opinion, I don't think it's going to get to that point. I don't think uh, NATO and, and the United States government is going to cross the Rubicon in that way. I don't think they think Ukraine is worth it. I think they see Ukraine as, uh, you know, as, as an expendable place where, they, where they're trying to hurt Russia as much as possible. I think they know Russia is going to win. Uh, I mean, it's just, it's just in terms of how, how much it's going to cost. 
And at the end of this, I think what's going to happen is we're going to go into, I mean, a lot of people have been talking about it for way before this, but it's really going to be like Cold War 2.0. I think there's going to be an Iron Curtain again. That's what I, that's what I think. It's just going to be in a different place. Well, I do want to thank you for coming on. This documentary is probably one of the most complete that I've seen coming out of the area. There's obviously other things that have come out of the area, but it's also, in my opinion, the most credible. Um, where can people find it? Well, you can find it on my uh, YouTube channel, The Revolution Report. Um, it's also on Odyssey, if you prefer Odyssey. Everything from our channel gets backed up onto odyssey.com because, of course, you know, it's just a matter of time until YouTube decides to shut us down if we keep putting out stuff like this. Um, but you can also find it on our website, the therevolutionreport.com. But it's there's hyphens, so the hyphen revolution hyphen report.com. And uh, the documentary is there, and there's also a lot of other content. We we have a team of correspondents that write articles as well on contemporary American issues from an anti-imperialist perspective. Um, I, I do a lot of collaborations with Jeff Monson, who I also collaborated on this documentary with. He's an international MMA fighter, heavyweight champion, uh, he's, and he's living in Russia. He's a good friend of mine, so we've been collaborating on a lot, on a lot of stuff together. This uh, documentary, of course, is uh, no exception to that. And uh, it's going to show up on Russian television as well. We've already got several channels that want to show it. They're going to show it in Lugansk and Donetsk as well. So, uh, so yeah, that's where you can find it if you speak Russian. But if you speak English, then the YouTube channel is fine. All right. Um, I'm going to give you the final word, and then, uh, but I do want to have you back on again. I want to have a conversation about ideology, ideo ideology and um, just some education, some history. Because, you know, again, I have some paradigm shifts or crashes that happen from reading and, and probably going a little deeper when it comes to your beliefs specifically. And uh, mm -hmm. I, I was shocked, actually. I, I mean, there's a little bit of, you know, like, what do you do with it when you're like, well, I, that, that's, I believe that. Like, that's true. But I'm reading it yeah. from the perspective of, you know, you're like, I'm a communist. And I'm like, I'm not. I'm a conservative. Yeah. <laughs> Here are my beliefs. And then you talk about things that you believe, and I don't think it's cut and dry anymore. I think, I think that those words are just words right now because we've muddied the water so much with, you know what people believe that it, that it's it's become almost obsolete like they're just words to attack people with so maybe just settling down and getting to figure out what that really means it would be important it'd be definitely be important for, for people here in the united states yeah i think i think we could uh, we could definitely have a, have another podcast about just that topic because i think it's just, it, it this sort of paradigm change happened really when the center of world imperialism, the United States government, aligned itself with these sort of, you know, wokists, these uh, these people who love cancel culture, these like li liberal, the liberal establishment that's completely uh, all throughout Hollywood, all throughout the media uh, and academia as well. The thing is, these people don't like communists either, don't like real communists. You know, they actually, there's, there's tons we could talk about because they're from a tendency of the left that was anti-Soviet and, and actually anti-materialist, anti anti-Marxist. 
um, and so they're they're from they're from a, a totally different school of like radical leftist thought. So you know, we, we went we went from a simple dichotomy at one point where there was the the capitalists and the capitalist state and the proletariat, you know, the working class, or as in in other people call them globalists. They're basically the same thing, you know, globalists, capitalists, and ordinary freedom loving people, the working class. Um, there was a, there was a point where there was a paradigm shift where these people in this in the, the in the capitalist class or in the globalist elites they started co they they started co opting this this rhetoric that they were doing good things for people that that they were you know uh, holier than thou liberals but in reality they were <laughs> committing terrible crimes in places where their own people were not able to see it and one of those biggest one of the biggest biggest examples of that was Ukraine and going going to Donbas as a student to this anti-fascist uh, conference that I was invited to uh, was one of the most eye-opening experiences of my life and it eventually led to me deciding to do this documentary and just the last thing I'll say about it I mean uh, I filmed it you know all these interviews are filmed by me with with these people that I ran into in Lugansk and Donetsk that uh, ordinary workers in Donbass helped me uh, get acquainted with, you know, through the Trade Union Federation. These are ordinary people who, you know, they even say in the documentary, you know, we didn't have any time to be thinking about revolution or whatever. We didn't care about that stuff. We, we just wanted to, like, protect our identity, live our lives, and just live in peace. And then all of a sudden, these people came and started messing with our lives and we had no other choice but to defend ourselves and and our traditions don thanks for coming on i i am i am very intrigued by uh number one you're super intelligent you're obviously very ethical the the movie was well done the documentary was well done um and it i think it shows us it it, it should make us all kind of take a step back and figure out are we looking at football teams because we think it's what we should support or are we looking at football teams from the perspective of this is the most the most ethical this is the most humanitarian this is the most um i think i'll, I'll say it god aligned um football team and i call it football teams because politics are frankly football teams yeah right um so i i don't want to end this interview any other way than to pray for you sorry but we end every show i'm not i'm not sorry we end every show with it doesn't, prayer. It doesn't offend me at all, all right. I'm, so, I'm all for it so and by the way uh, i always i always tell people that uh my prayers work i just want you to know my prayers work so all right gonna, i'll keep that in mind i'm gonna pray for you father Thanks. god thank you for the opportunity to have don on today uh, thank you for his courageous voice. Thank you for his ability to dig under the surface and to um, bring us truth. Um, thank you, Father, for the wisdom that you've bestowed upon him, for the talents and abilities you've given him. Father, I would, I would just ask a special blessing on Don that you can uh, be in his heart, that you can guide him in the things that are necessary to bring truth to not just the people in Russia, but around the world. Father, we, we have ideological differences, and we, we know that those differences exist. But at the end of the day, we know that we are all your children. And we know we are all here for a purpose. And I would just ask you to guide and protect Don and those around him. And to put a hedge of protection around his heart and his mind. 
that he may lean into his humanity, he may lean, lean into um, his understanding and his caring for the people, not just in Dumbass, but in other regions around the world. Father, please bless Don's family who lives in the United States. Please give them comfort. Allow them to have joy and peace and allow them to know that you are protecting Don where he is. Father, another thing that I would ask for is that we can find a way to get rid of this corruption and to get rid of and expose those that would do harm and create conflict for, uh, for their own gain. There's a lot of innocent lives that are lost, not just in, in Dumbass, but around the world. And Father, at some point, I, we just need to be able to eradicate this evil um, in, in not just one country, but all countries. And I know that that's a, that's a bold ask and something that probably won't happen in my lifetime, but I certainly believe that it's everyone's goal to have life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, not just an American ideal. So, Father, I just thank you again for this opportunity and for the voice that you've given me. And I ask for all of these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, my friend. Well, thank you. I, I appreciate you praying for me, and, and I appreciate you having, you having me on your show again. It's always and a pleasure, Joe. my prayers work. I just want you to know my prayers work. I mean, I'm just telling you. I mean, I have this thing going on, and it's... <laughs> Don, Don, thank you for coming on. God bless you. Thanks. You guys need to go watch this documentary. It's two hours of time. It's a little over two hours, two hours and eight minutes. It will actually touch you. And for those of you that may say, you know, that you believe this, he believes this, how can you have this conversation? I spend a vast majority of my time talking to Democrats, not talking to Republicans. Not talking to people that, that think that they think the way I do. I'm an American first. I believe in America first. Put your mask on before assisting others. And what I see happening right now is that Russia is making a very unpopular in the Western paradigm of, of, of politics and, and uh, foreign policy. But it's necessary in order to protect life. And so if we set things aside and we get back to the things that we can all agree on, we can agree that life is short. It should be protected. And it should be something that we all see as sacred, not as a jockeying point or a, a pawn on the board that can be used in order to manipulate, enslave, or hurt others. So as you watch it, we'll put it up here again. I'll drop it on all my social channels. Uh, give him some comments. Give Don some comments on it. He showed you the three places that you can see it on Odyssey, on YouTube, and obviously on the hyphen revolution hyphen report.com. You can also follow him on Telegram at the revolution report um, or t.me slash the revolution report. That's all for today. God bless you all. And remember, I did say my prayers work because they do. I'll see you later. Take care. If you want to watch Conservative Daily Podcast, we go live Monday through Friday at 10 a.m. Mountain Time and 4 p.m. Mountain Time. You can find us live at conservative-daily.com, on Rumble, on Frank's Beach, where we go live on Lindell TV 2 at those same times, on DLive, and now on Odyssey. You can also find our episodes at brighteon.com. Make sure you also check out the link in the description to go to the Brighteon store and prepare you and your family with the awesome storable food and other products that they have there. 
You can find us on the audio edition at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, iHeartRadio, TuneIn, Podbean, Audible, and everywhere else. Make sure you go and give us a five-star review and be that ambassador of truth. Share this episode with everyone who needs to hear it. Text the word FREEDOM to 89517 and we'll shoot you a text message when we're about to go live. Check out the description for our link to the daily newsletter so you get access to the Fax Blasts. We want to thank you for being a listener of Conservative Daily Podcast as we pursue truth and fight to restore our nation. We will continue to provide you with the most important information that the mainstream media will not show you. Now at conservative-daily.com, you have the option to become a member with us. Each membership option varies in access and discounts in regards to the ability to interact with the Daily Facts Blast, monthly savings, access to extra content, and interactions with the hosts and guests of the show. Go to conservative-daily.com and become a member right now for as little as $10 a month. Make sure you check out social media and find us everywhere at Conservative Daily and at Joel Oltman. We'll see you next time on Conservative Daily Podcast. It's time to do the hard work. Let's take our country back, patriots. God bless America.